Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. I like to start by asking us to talk to each other a little bit. And uh, we'll use the Christmas holiday as the topic, kind of a check-in, like how was your how was your day? How's your relationship to the holiday? Whether you celebrate or don't celebrate, um, you know, do you resent it? Do you judge it? Do you hate it? Do you love it? Are you somebody who loves loves the holiday? Um, does it bring up emotional stuff from you? Often the holiday time can be, you know, bring up our, our disappointing childhoods. Um, does that stuff come up for you? Do you sit with it? Do you bring the Dharma into your relationship to what comes up for you around a day like today, a, uh, you know, big day in our culture? Um, compassion, forgiveness. Um, appreciation, maybe some of you just feel like, oh, I love Christmas and I, you know, lots of joy, lots of appreciation. And, and some of, not all of us feel that way. Not everyone feels that way. So just to check in with each other around your thoughts and feelings and, and do you, like today, have you tried to bring mindfulness? Have you tried to bring compassion? Have you tried to bring forgiveness towards the difficult family members maybe that you have to deal with or choose not to deal with because of the difficulty and, and maybe abuse or, um, you know, unskillfulness uh, in those situations. Um, sometimes we can just set it aside, but, you know, are you also trying to bring some of these Dharma tools to thinking of mom and dad and siblings, if you have some and grandparents and, and the, and the bigger sort of, you know, cultural consumer pressure to, you know, give gifts and receive gifts and um, all that <coughs> shit that we, that we live in. So in the room, you know, talk to each other and at home, I'll put you in some breakout rooms and we'll do that and then we'll meditate. Okay, welcome back. And... Uh, <laughs> we will meditate so find a way to be find a way to sit that is upright and relaxed i'm on the chair tonight because i forgot to take off my jeans and yeah, hard to cross my legs in my jeans but as you're ready settling into mm -hmm. the upright posture Allowing your eyes to be gently closed. Releasing any unnecessary tension that you can release. Softening the brow, the jaw, the whole face. Neck, shoulders, chest. Spend some time 
seeing what's happening in your stomach and your belly. As the belly rises and falls with each breath, see if you can soften your belly as you exhale, release any layers, levels of tension. Many find that in our stomachs we hold craving, aversion. The belly can become tight, can become hard as a defense, as an armoring of the trunk of the body. See if you can soften. Mindfulness is the practice of present time, non-judgmental, investigative awareness. We bring our attention, our awareness to what's happening in the here and now, what's happening in the body and the heart and the mind. With the quality of not judging as good or bad, anything that's happening, just seeing it, acknowledging it, feeling it, and investigating. Mindfulness is a practice of inquiry, of investigation of what's happening. And mindfulness meditation needs to be balanced with an attitude, a relationship of friendliness, of kindness, that quality of non-judgmental awareness. Actually infused with love and kindness, with patience and acceptance with compassion and forgiveness. So that it's more like a loving awareness, friendly awareness, 
than uh, some sort of detached observation, embodied present time, kind awareness of the sensations in our body right now. Feeling the hands, the feet, arms and legs. Contact with the seat that you're on. Investigating the belly, the tension there, softening, letting go of anything that the body is holding, the old wounds as much as you can, rather than resisting, relaxing into whatever's here. And if you're new to this kind of meditation, then it's generally encouraged that you use the breath as the first object, mindfulness of breathing, breathing in, keep your full awareness, attention to the breath, the sensations of the breath. Breathing out, give your full awareness to the sensations created by breathing out, investigating the breath. Where do you feel it? How does it feel? The instructions invite us to become more and more inclusive 
of our whole being. Present time awareness includes every aspect of our being, the mind, the heart, the body, sensations, emotions, even the planning mind, our views and opinions become objects of investigation. What's my mind thinking about? These beliefs that we have about the holidays, investigating, questioning. And a core aspect of what is true is happening in our experience is the perception of what we call feeling tones, pleasant or unpleasant or neutral experiences, sounds, smells, tastes, emotions, sensations, and thoughts that we perceive, we experience as either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. So we investigate what's happening and how it feels. Which gives us the opportunity to respond, to tend to what is unpleasant, what's painful, unpleasant memories that arise unpleasant sensations in the body, unpleasant emotions, grief, sorrow, loneliness, anger, all of those unpleasant natural human experiences. Mindfulness identifies them because it's the opportunity to begin meeting them with compassion. with mercy, with perhaps forgiveness.
This way mindfulness teaches us to respond with compassion to pain. And likewise, when the experience is pleasant, when the thoughts, the emotions, the sensations, the sounds are pleasant, we can see our tendency to cling. The phenomena of craving for pleasure of getting attached, of clinging. And we begin to let go, to practice non-attached appreciation.
each moment investigating, is there something happening right now that is calling for compassion, for some tenderness, loving response, some pain? Was there something that I'm clinging to that could be relinquished, let go of, clinging to the past? We can let go, come back to the present, clinging, craving, worrying about the future. We can let go, come back to the present. I heard that the 
Buddha once taught that we could search the whole world, all realms of existence, never find anybody, anybody more worthy of our love than ourselves. Just reflect on that for a moment. Do you know this? Do you know your own worth? Worthy of love, of your own love, of the love, the kindness, the appreciation of others. There does seem to be something counter instinctual to being kind and loving to ourselves, compassionate and friendly. So we train the heart, the mind with meditation and loving kindness. So spending the last couple months, couple minutes saying to yourself, I love you. I have always loved you. I will always love you to yourself, from yourself, from the wisest part of the Buddha mind, the bodhicitta, the compassionate heart. Wisdom meets ourselves with love and kindness. Ignorance feels unworthy, is confused. Connecting with the wisest part of your being with an attitude of love. I love you. I have always loved you. I will always love you. I do believe that the flip side of this teaching is the universal love for all sentient beings. Wishing for the ease, the well being, the freedom for all beings. Including oneself, including our friends, our family, and loving kindness, and including the unknown masses and loving kindness.
when you're ready, allowing your eyes to open, to come back to awareness of seeing and moving, connection with the people in the room, the people on Zoom, in the Zoom room. So I don't have a, I don't have a Dharma talk really for tonight. I'll share a couple of reflections. Um, last week I was in Thailand for the second time in a month. <laughs> um, just a short trip. I went out there with my friend Russ, who's here uh, in the room tonight to interview uh, Ajahn Amaro, who's been um, one of my core teachers, Buddhist, he's a Buddhist monk, he's an English guy who's a Buddhist monk for like 40 something years, he's been in robes, I believe it's 40 something years. Um, and I met him 30 years ago, over 30, maybe it's 32, 33 years ago now, something like that. He was one of my first, he was, he was actually my second teacher, uh, second retreat I ever attended. Um, anyways, we went and we interviewed and we got to hang out with him for two hours at this Buddhist monastery in the northeast of Thailand. We interviewed him for a documentary film that Russ is making about uh, refuge recovery, about Buddhism, the, the Buddhist approach to recovering healing from addiction. And You know, there was two hours, uh, so there, there, and it was just, there was this great Dharma talk that he gave to us. And I don't know, one of the things that, there's so many pieces, but one of the things that continues to resonate a week later, um, is his emphasis on Sangha. And Sangha is the Buddhist word that we use for community, for the, the necessity of connection with each other. And um, you know, so Buddhism has taught me this, that uh, we, and we, it's, it's one of the core foundational uh, practices to take refuge in the Sangha, to find a community of people to be a part of. And, um, you know, we were talking about addiction and, and, you know, he was like, yeah, well, of course, you know, one of the core things is to have a community of people. And of course, we're interviewing him uh, about a program of a community of, you know, the whole refuge recovery, which is based on having a community of recovering people to, to be part of and, and um, 
And at the, at the same time of this emphasis on uh, the importance of community and um, then there's also this teaching that he gave us during the interview and that I often reflect on where the Buddha in many places, you know, talks about take refuge in the community, but there's this strong emphasis on make sure that it's a community of wisdom. Because before I started practicing Buddhism, I took refuge in the, you know, punk rock Sangha. I took refuge down at the crack park. <laughs> I took refuge. <laughs> I took refuge, you know, like you know, I was too young, but I would have taken refuge at the bar for sure. Um, you know, there's a lot of places that we can take refuge and a lot of communities that we uh, can be part of, but are they healthy? Are they wise? Are they... Uh, leading to where we actually want to go, not to just like, yeah, I belong to the click, because I know a lot of us have found in myself, for sure, I've found belonging in a whole bunch of really unhealthy communities in the past. And um, Anajanamara was reminding us that the Buddha's teaching is uh, to make sure that those who you're drawing near to are wise. And, you know, and it's a little bit like, well, we don't want to be too judgmental of each other, but we do want to look at each other through this lens of, is this somebody who's at least trying to be wise? Not that they're all enlightened already, or, but are they at least trying, you know? And so from the Buddhist perspective, um, are they living an ethical life of honesty? Are they living a life of nonviolence? Are they living a life of sobriety? Um, and, you know, one of the things that Amaro uh, did talk about in that was his, um, one of the questions Rust asked him was like, well, what do you think of like all of these American, these Western Buddhists who are ignoring the Buddhist teaching about abstinence from intoxication? And, you know, these famous teachers, all of these Buddhists who are still drinking, still getting high, not practicing sobriety, abstinence, which is clear. And, and, uh, and I think he asked him something about like, you know, is this, a, is this open for interpretation <laughs> from the Buddhist perspective? Because it seems to be, right? A lot, of, a lot of people seem to be saying like, well, I interpret it, you know, as moderation. Uh, and moderation's okay. A little recreational, moderate, you know, psilocybin or alcohol or, uh, you know, weed or whatever. And, you know, Ajahn Amaro's teaching was, um, he says, you know, uh, there's, you can't find any scholars. You can't find anybody who actually knows the kind of earliest scriptural teachings of Buddhism that will uh, interpret it any way other than the Buddha was encouraging abstinence to be sober. Um, now this, you know, in, in Buddhist communities, not so much in against the stream, but I think in a lot of Buddhist communities, this can be a dilemma if we're gonna hold the fifth precept as one of the kind of guides to, do I surround myself with wise people? And, um, you know, and against the stream, it's a bit easier because like three quarters of us in this community are recovering from addiction and therefore practicing abstinence out of necessity. 
But in both, most, most Buddhist communities, you'll find a bunch of people who aren't addicts and therefore aren't practicing abstinence out of necessity and very few who practice it out of um, the kind of ethical commitment to the Buddhist path or, or commitment to uh, being mindful. And so I continue to reflect on this. I, I think it's a dilemma for me, this encouragement to uh, draw near to community. And I've, you know, I've, uh, you know it's the one thing I, I like community. I think for introverts, maybe it's harder. I'm a little bit of an extrovert. I like community. I like being part of cliques. Um, I like being part of, you know, the Buddhist communities, the Dharma punks, the refuge recovery, the, I like being part of the 12 step communities. I, you know, I, I like it. I was like, I like to feel, uh, even, even though some, I even like the feeling of like, this is a little bit neurotic. I know it is, but I like the feeling of not belonging. Like I love being in AA meetings and feeling like an outsider. <laughs> and being like, I'm this, I'm part of this thing, but I think almost everybody here is wrong. <laughs> I think that this philosophy, this Christian philosophy is like pretty delusional, but I like being, I'm, but I'm part of it. <laughs> but I like being, you know, so there's even, so I know there's something neurotic in me about like, I'm part of this thing and you can't kick me out. I've been coming here for decades and I think you're wrong but I'm still part of it. <laughs> um, anyways, I'm digressing into my judgments. Um, but this, so this insistence on taking refuge in, you know, and drawing near and, and connecting with and sustaining relationships with wise people, or those who are at least trying to be wise. And, um, and then, you know, and it, and it actually, you know, in several places, and he was reminding us, says, uh, and people who aren't trying to be wise, avoid them. And it, it, I don't know what the poly word is, but it translates as fools. People who aren't trying to live an ethical lifestyle. And he says, avoid fools. And I, I, not this time, but last one of the last times I was with this with John Amaro, I asked him, I said, can we just classify anybody who drinks alcohol as a fool? Anybody who's not practicing the fifth precept and living their life trying to be mindful all of the time as a fool? And he said, I don't think so. I think you're, I think you're, I think you're taking it a little too far, Noah. And I was like, damn. <laughs> like, I just want that sort of like, because it's confusing. It's, it is confusing for me. And of course, there's really good people who aren't sober because they don't need to be sober. And they're not fools. You know, they're not, they're not alcoholics like us. So they don't have to be abstinent like I do. But I find that, you know, kind of, uh, discernment about who's wise and who's foolish uh tricky sometimes i don't know if you do also and and then i've had a lot of um experience of having really uh poor judgment 
and some people that I thought were incredibly wise Buddhists, Sangha, that I took refuge in um, to kind of having revealed that they weren't very honest, they weren't very ethical, they weren't you know, very kind in the long run. Um, and that disappointment of like loss and betrayal and, and like, oh, I thought, you know, and, 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 I, and it's a good wake up call. It's a good, it's good to be disillusioned, I think. And to think like, okay, I need to, I need community, but I also need to maintain discernment and uh, that not all meditators, not all Buddhists, not all spiritual people are ethical or are wise just because you're, you know, meditating or showing up or even teaching, you know, I've had such painful experiences with teachers, successful, famous teachers, who it turned out were uh, not very wise, or not very ethical. Um, One of the teachings he was giving us about this, and I'm gonna I'm gonna give this talk soon. This isn't it tonight, um, but he reminded me that there's a. I don't remember them all right now. I gotta look at them. But there's a teaching, uh, and a list of ten ten things that lead to, and it's a, it's this list of ten things that lead to enlightenment, lead to liberation, and it starts with, and the Buddha often puts this emphasis. It starts with wise friends. The start of the path to liberation is who are we associating with? Who are we hanging with? Who are we influenced by? And it says something like, and I promise to give this talk in a better way later, but it says something like, you know, if you hang out with wise people, you're more likely to listen to the Dharma. You're more likely to be influenced by people who are like, oh, yeah, let's go listen to the Dharma talk. Let's go, uh, if you hang out with wise, and if you, if you listen to the Dharma talk, you're more likely to practice the precepts and you're more likely to meditate and you're more likely to develop wisdom and you're more likely to get free from the causes of suffering in our lives. And that you can track that all back to, there were some wise people that influenced me and supported me and encouraged me that I drew near to, and then it supported my practice that led to whatever freedom we're finding. I found that uh, it's one of the pieces that was really resonating for me from, from this very short trip to Thailand that we did last week. So I'll leave it there for tonight and open to questions, comments, maybe here, maybe I'll say one more thing. You know, this emphasis on take refuge in the Sangha, um, in, I don't know, juxtaposition with it's Christmas and all of the uh, pressure to like spend time with your family. And maybe you're one of the few, I think rare few, uh, people who have like a really great family that's loving and wise and meditates and practices ethical behavior and renunciation. And maybe you have that family and it's like, oh, it's great. Like I go home and we connect on a heart level. <laughs> maybe you have that family. 
Um, most of us don't. I feel like most of the people who find their way to, you know, like meditation and recovery, and uh, we don't have those families. And our families are a source of difficulty and pain and trauma and, uh, you know, judgment and wounds. And there is an encouragement in Buddhism to, especially for the monks. Uh, one of the vows when you become a monk or a nun is that you, you're, you're going, you're leaving your, you're going forth into homelessness and you're actually leaving your relationship with your families. And you're saying, I'm, I'm no longer part of that family. I'm part of this family. Now it's not completely like, it's not like you can never talk to your family again, but you know, that's not the core. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Rather than having our family be the core uh, kind of center of our, our life, center of our community life, it uh, becomes tangential and the Sangha is the center of our life. This, you know, the, especially for the monks and nuns, they literally go and they live together and that's their community. That having been said, I ran into another old teacher who I've also known for 30 years, monk. Uh, at the airport and he's he's got to be in his 80s or late 70s maybe early 80s at this point and um he was talking about we were chatting with him at the airport on the way up to where we're going this monastery and he was talking about his mom and about how he was taking his mom to hawaii this summer and I said, oh, I took my mom to Hawaii last summer. And um, I was like, Ajahn Pasano, how old's your mom? Because <laughs> I'm like, this dude's 80. And he's talking about taking her to Hawaii. He's like, my mom's 100. Whoa. I was like, and she still travels? He's like, yeah, she's a little slow, but she still travels. I was like, what's the, like, you know? He's like, just good genes. <laughs> Mom's 100, we're going to Hawaii. <laughs> and, you know, because these, you know, monks, nuns, you know, Ajahn Amaro talked about, you know, being with his parents as they died. And they have a relationship with their parents, for sure. Um, but it's not the central relationship anymore. It's like, yeah, that's still, there's a connection there. But the central connection is with those who are practicing the Dharma. Who are committed to the dharma that's we still take them to hawaii <laughs> but that's not where we live anymore that's not the center of our lives so any questions comments discussion anything about the holidays, anything about the Dharma, anything about Sangha that you want to talk about at home, you can raise your hand in the reactions tab, please. Remind me your name. Joe. Joe, yeah, please. Um, so what you said reminded me of what I felt when I, when I found out that my philosophy mentor, who I dearly loved and loved, but I found out he wasn't sober. And Buddhism came to me from him, through him. And this was like three years into our, like he's my mentor, he's my dear friend, I love him. And I, I found out he wasn't 
a sober person. He didn't need to be sober, you know, but that feeling of like, how is it possible? Like I had this like weird, it, it felt so personal, like this heartbreak, like how could he not be, how? And he is one of the most ethical, loving, kind, tremendous, being, wise, you know, not perfect. He's a, he's a human. Um, but I had to come to terms with like, oh, you know, just because someone is a, you know, is not a sober person doesn't mean you throw out all the amazing qualities that they, you know, doesn't mean they can't embody, you know, so much of the Dharma, like all the rest perhaps, Yeah. you know? And so that was, it was a struggle though, you know? And I looked at him, I'm like, no, he's still that person that I love and that I learned from and that I want to continue learning from, you know? And so it was a really interesting, you know, challenging, you know, like how to, how to find that harmony. Did he teach you, uh, he taught you about Buddhism. Did he teach you that when it's one of the precepts to be sober in Buddhism? He, he taught all of it, yeah. you know? And also he was always very supportive of my sobriety. Right. Like when I met him, I was hardcore straight edge. Like that's how I found sobriety. <laughs> and, and so he was always like my biggest champion. Like when I didn't believe in me for all sorts of reasons, not even just sobriety, like he was just right there. You know, yeah. and so that's why it just never occurred to me. Yeah, you know, he's like the purest. I know it's a terrible, terrible term to use, but like when at that point I was like, he's the purest, wisest, most that I know. You know, and and it didn't make it any less so, except yeah. my judgment about it. Yeah. And then like there was just a teeny, teeny thought in the back of my mind, like, what if he's allowed to drink? Then, you know, and I never went down that path, but it was just in there, you know, kind of like, why not? Why not me? You know. I mean, that's a good. Okay, at home, can you mostly hear? Just pretty close. Can you hear the conversation that we're having at home? Yeah. Okay. Um, that's always one of my, I don't know, fears about teachers who aren't sober, even if they're not. Have, don't have a problem with it, uh, that likely they have students that have, you know, that are need to be sober. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I know that I know that there's been actually a lot of uh, alcoholics relapsed um, because they found out that their teacher drank and they thought like, well, if my teacher can drink, then maybe I can drink too. Yeah. Uh, if my treat, you know, my teacher's doing psychedelics yeah. and talking about how, you know, the doors that they're open, maybe I can do psychedelics and then I can smoke some weed and then I can start drinking and now I'm fucking shooting dope again. <laughs> you know, like, um, so I feel, I personally have the strong view that it's so irresponsible for teachers to not practice abstinence, sometimes just in solidarity with the suffering that addiction and alcoholism does cause and say like hey i'm gonna be somebody uh that's just sober yeah because i don't want to be modeling that that is okay for all the people that it's not okay for right. and in buddhism there's a special uh you know it teaches it's a core teaching to be abstinent 
Well, and I should say he is a philosophy. Yeah. And you did say that. Yeah. yeah and you did say that. Okay. And it, that is different than a yeah. Buddhist teacher. It's not like, yeah, yeah, Buddhism was in yeah. there and that's what I loved, you know, but it's not like it was his, you know, he wasn't a Dharma teacher. But then there's this other dilemma about really good Dharma teachers. Yeah that not only aren't sober that are actually alcoholics yeah. like alan watts you ever listen to alan watts alan. alan watts gives a great dharma talk yeah. it's really entertaining it's practicing alcoholic i mean he gave dude's been dead for a long time but <laughs> you know that there, there's that dilemma of like wow there's actually these like drunks yeah. that philosophy dharma you know chogyam trunkpa you know his books his teachings alcoholic you know the whole shambhala community based on an alcoholic buddhist teacher but read you know um uh, spiritual materialism that you know some of the trunkpa books they're fucking brilliant you know drunks are great artists <laughs> and sometimes great dharma teachers you know and great writers and poets and all of that stuff that you know sometimes comes um so it's a it is um can be a dilemma you know do we just classify them as fools because of their intoxication or do we say like oh, actually a lot of wisdom came through even though some of their behaviors were quite foolish or maybe you know core behavior of addiction was quite foolish to be stuck in it but a lot of wisdom came through too. Eric, please. Um, thank you, Noah. I I relate to you so much, man. Like, there's a lot that you say that that I can relate to. You know, I um I also like like being a part of stuff, and you know, being like in the scene and a little bit of extrovert, you know. But I also I go I go to AA too, and I'm like I don't believe guys either you know um and i feel like there's a lot of people that aren't wise there you know and then what ends up happening for me and i and especially after this journey that we just went on i come back here and i in this vibration where it's like i don't even know how to talk to people sometimes and i'm like then i start judging and i'm like you guys are just not on my level Anymore, you know what I mean? <laughs> like I'm some it, you know, I'm floating, right? And I'm like, yeah, I just, and I, I find myself not wanting to be around people and not even engage in conversation with certain people because I'm just like, I, and this was already happening before, you know, as I'm starting my growth, you know, with my sobriety, especially this time around. And I'm just, yeah, I, I don't even know how to engage in people. I go out to places and I'm like, yeah. I don't even want to be here. Like I go, you know, I find more comfort now being alone, which is incredible. Because the first year of my sobriety, I couldn't stand to be alone. Mm -hmm. Right. The second year it got a little bit better. And now after this journey, I'm like, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. It's really strange. And then talk about um abstaining from everything, right? So I think about the Buddha and just how mind-blowing this whole thing is. I'm like, no psychedelics, nothing. But is an understanding that you can reach those states through meditation? Yeah. 
and you know maybe not quite as um trippy as drugs but you reach those states of seeing through you know the way that sometimes psychedelics can help us you know we have those trips and we're like wow i saw through how impersonal this whole fucking thing is and how you know and yeah through meditation we can kind of come to that place of like wow wow that's not i was been i've been a really self-centered <laughs> attached aversive person and none of that is who i am you know it's not who i am so yes the core is that through our own efforts through our own training of our minds we can get there in this lifetime and the you know the buddha is quite uh encouraging and, and insistent like you can do it through meditation in this lifetime and so the mindfulness meditation to to stay away from like judgment as i find myself in that place yeah i don't really like how that feels when I'm now meditating, I think about being compassionate towards other people and everyone's on their own journey. And then I'm like, you know, what kind of that you do? Where did you go? Yeah. It really vacillates through the of, of course. Yeah. I do want to um, investigate with you real quick. Because I know you can relate to me and I can relate to you and that feeling of like, it can be dangerous you know what you're that that it can be dangerous for us to feel like well i found something better and the ego getting um attached to to it and saying like well this is uh you know a superior spiritual path um and which can lead to isolation and even that, it's kind of that's what I was trying to talk about my own kind of dilemma of like, okay, well, is it everyone who drinks? Is it, you know, everyone who believes in God? Is it everyone who's not following the Theravada? Because I'll even do this with Buddhists. You're like, oh, you're into Tibetan Buddhism? <laughs> that's not real Buddhism. Oh, you're into Zen? That's not real Buddhism. Oh, you're not into the Thai, you know, oh, you're into the Burmese tradition. That's, you know, kind <laughs> of cool, you know, and just watching how the judging mind who says like, oh, you know, I found this thing that I'm really excited about that happens to come from Thai forest tradition primarily. Um, and that, that, that othering, that separation and that feeling of isolation and that kind of like when it comes to Sangha for us, we need the 12 step people yeah. we need you know even though there's and there's fucking great people there you know there's so many people in the 12 step world that you know you only need two percent of them to be good <laughs> right but you need to find those two percent you know like you can go to that meeting on the beach that we go to and there's you know 200 people there and there's you know like there's 20 really solid people there you know there's 180 kooks <laughs> But there's 20 really, and those are the, that's kind of the Buddhist teaching of like draw near to those people that are practicing what they're, you know, preaching and are, are good people. And, um, and, but I'm curious for you, uh, how dangerous this is and knowing your own past with relapse a couple years in, mm -hmm. is this part of the cycle? I'm, I want to be around people. And then I start isolating and then I don't want to be part of it so much. And then I use again. 
what has happened for me, I was judgmental of people in AA, especially to the point of where it was becoming a detriment. And I'm like, I don't even want to go to meetings because mm-hmm. I don't want to be around these people. Mm-hmm. After the journey, I come back and I still have some judgment, but I still show up and I'm around the people that make me feel good that I actually see doing things. Mm-hmm. I don't just take the word of people because this is what's happened for me. Bro, I got your back. I'm down for you. Call me anytime. And then I'd reach out and I'd never hear anything. I'd be like, dude, that's not, you know. And since I've gotten back, I kind of just let that wash away, fade away. Mm-hmm. And I'm around the people that I know are like my crew. Yeah. And I stay close to them. You know what I mean? I could call Eric more, you know what I mean? But yeah, it's it's things like that. So <laughs> I'm not going to. <laughs> oh, George. oh, George. You were calling America Thailand. I'm not going to stop. You could call yourself yeah. more. <laughs> I'm not going to stop going to meetings, but yes, absolutely, it could be dangerous. I've decided to isolate and say, well, what I found is better, and you guys are wrong. You know, that's. I mean, luckily, you do have this sangha you have refuge you have a whole bunch of community that is more on your page so you know it hasn't always been the case but now it is the case and you're fortunate you live up the street you have this community you have refuge um you know and you still have those really core cool good solid 12-step people you know and you don't need the whole community You, you need you know you need a handful of some solid people, but we also have to, and it's part of what I was reflecting on, we also have to realize that that handful will be rotating characters. I think we probably always need, you know, five close-ish people in our lives, but those five will be rotating. And sometimes it's really hard when, you know, our friend Casey moves to Santa Cruz or, you know, Joe disappears or, and it's like, oh shit, now I got an opening. You know, one of my core five is gone and I need to put some effort into, you know, hey, let's invite Eric in, you know, like Casey's gone, but Eric's in recovery again, you know, he's the homie like, and and knowing that there's going to be those rotating casts of that core support Sangha wise, you know. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Tippy, please. Yeah. Good to see you. Welcome back to Jet Life. Thank you. Um, What did the Buddha, what did the Buddha instruct us how to act when members of the Sangha, when we were talking about, oh, people turn out not to have right action, not to be acting with right intention. And it's really a point, like, do we just say impersonal, not us? Do we, did the Buddha just say protect? Like, I'm trying, I don't remember, like, if when people do harm to us in a non Buddhist way in our Sangha, what is the Buddha's teaching for how we conduct ourselves? Protect ourselves or not? Sorry. I don't, 
I don't, I can't like bring up specific uh, kind of suttas. Couple of, you know, so the one thing that comes up for me is uh, there, cause there's a lot of conflict uh, in the time of the Buddha in the Sangha and a lot of arguing and a lot of people feeling harmed by each other and accusing each other and, you know. And at one point the Buddha gets um, frustrated, looks like he gets frustrated and he walks away from the Sangha. And um, he's just like, these people are just fighting and being unskillful and, you know, and he just, he leaves and he just walk, wanders off and he's wandering through a forest and he comes upon a small group of like five. And, um, and he says, you know, how are you, how are you guys getting along? And they said, oh, we get along well. And um, he says, how? He's in the, the, the kind of, there's a Q and A that goes back and forth. He says, well, the, the person that he's talking to, he says, well, um, you know, it's quite simple. Like I just didn't let go of my views and opinions. And, you know, if my you know friends want to do something that seems skillful, I say, oh yeah, sure. I just go along with it. And I don't push my agenda, even if it's a bit different than theirs, as long as it's within the sort of ethical kind of path that we're on. Um, this is it's like a non-attachment is the key. I can't think of a, a, a clear kind of scriptural response for you, but I'll tell you, you know, my, my view, my opinion, what I believe it is, is um, yes, compassion for the confused actions of others. Yes, forgiveness towards the confused actors that cause harm, you know, including in the Sangha. And yes, boundaries. You know, when, you, when somebody has shown you that they're uh, untrustworthy in some way, believe them. <laughs> and don't, don't let forgiveness become something of like, well, since I forgive you, I'll put myself in that position again. Like, I forgive you. I have compassion for your confusion, but also I'm not going, I, I believe you, you know, <laughs> I, I'm not going to, you know, do that again. I'm not going to put myself in that position again, understanding that they have the karma from their actions. And that we don't, you know, yes, you know, boundaries as in like, I'm going to stop engaging in that way, loaning or trusting or even kind of associating with very closely. Um, but, and that they have the karma of that action uh, and that we don't need to punish them or, um, you know, I get this thing in my role in refuge recovery uh, because I'm the director and the founder of that. Uh, I don't get it so much in Against the Stream, but I get it in Refuge a lot where people will like write to me and be like, we need you to kick this person out of our community <laughs> because they were unskillful in some way or another. And, you know, and that sort of like, the boundary is we need to kick this person out of our recovery community. And I'm, I, you know, my response every time is like, I, we, A, we don't do that. B, I'm not the person that's kicking anybody out of your community. <laughs> that's your community. Um, <clears throat> but at times it's probably, you know, and what we created in Refuge, we don't run into this and against the stream, um, but we created a sort of suggested, like, you know, if somebody's really unskillful in a meeting or in the community that you, you know, confront them on some level and say, hey, this behavior goes against our guiding principles, against our ethics. Um, you know, please don't do that here. Um, and if they do, you know, it's kind of three strikes. And then at some point you say, you know, maybe don't come to this group for the next month. 
And then uh, maybe, maybe actually, okay, you're doing it again. You know, we need you to not come for two months now. And so like giving people three chances. And then on the third chance saying like, you're actually just not welcome in this group anymore. You know, you have, you have to find another group. You know, it's not that you're kicked out of Buddhism or you're kicked out of recovery or you're kicked out of, you know, it's just, you just, you know, at that behavior, we're not going to accept it in this group. And I hope you find another group and I hope you change your behavior. And so I, I believe there is a, absolutely a place for boundaries and some consequence at some points. I don't know if that's helpful. Was that what you're looking for? You know, I realized it wasn't, I wasn't clear enough in my asking of questions, which happens. Um, but often I can get answers, right? Like I didn't mean it just for the sangha. Right? In your life. But in, yeah, I mean, that's a big question. How do we, um, what does the Buddha say about the generous? compassion but when people have proven when people do not bring that right action yeah you know how do we address that yeah and i have answers just from what you were saying about the sangha yeah one of the ways i also like to look at it um when i feel harmed by someone is yes, compassion, yes, forgiveness, yes, boundaries with that person, but also a reflection on like uh, karmic purification of, um, you know, cause you know, it's so it's so easy to feel so angry and justified anger when someone's being unskillful to you and you didn't really do anything to deserve it. You know, like, why are you treating me like this? I haven't, you know, like, I don't, I don't deserve this. Um, but then thinking about like, there's all of the times where I was unskillful in my life. Yeah. And not to this person, not in this situation, but there's been lots of times in my life where I was unskillful. And when someone's unskillful to me and I meet it with composure and compassion, and it actually is burning off some of that negative karma that I created in my earlier life or last week or whatever, <laughs> right? So some, you know, and that's hard to see. That's hard to look at like, oh, you're abusing me. What a great opportunity to burn off some karma. <laughs> <laughs> but there is that aspect to it too. First boundaries, compassion, forgiveness, and also some karmic purification. Because although I didn't steal from you, I stole from a lot of other people when I was a kid. Although I didn't do anything to you, I, you know, I've been unskillful to other people in the past. So that's all our time for tonight. Merry Christmas. Um, I don't know if there was just no questions online or what, but. No, I didn't see any hands. Sunday is New Year's Eve. I am doing the annual, I think this is the 18th annual New Year's Eve intention setting ceremony here in Los Angeles. 
Before that, I did it in New York. Before that, in San Francisco. For the last 20, I think I started doing these on uh, in 99 in, in Y2K. So for the last 23 years, I've been doing these uh, intention setting ceremonies on New Year's Eve. You're all invited. Um, there's a registration fee. It's on the website, on the Against the Stream website. If you can't afford to come, um, I'll scholarship you. You know, if you have the money, pay the money and, you know, it goes to the nonprofit. Um, I, I'm charging 50 bucks to come in person as a sort of like, you know, year end fundraiser for the for the center. So if you got 50 bucks, pay it and come in person. Um, if you don't have it, you can come anyways. I don't know if everybody knows that. You know, there's a thing around Buddhist, you know, the way that we I teach Buddhism, which is like nobody's ever turned away because you can't afford it. You're welcome to be here. Uh, but if you can afford it, pay it. Uh, likewise for online, if you uh, want to come to the Zoom group and you uh, can't afford the $20 to come online, uh, just shoot us an email and we'll send you the link and we'll scholarship anyone who wants to, to be here and wants to be part of it. Know that. Um, so that's, I think, 7.30 or 7, 7 o'clock, I think, on uh, Sunday. And then uh, Monday is New Year's Day. Uh, but I'll be here again and maybe we'll have, you know, a small gathering again on New Year's Day, but you're welcome and I'll be here on uh, next Monday. So Sunday and Monday opportunities to come and practice. And uh, classes done by donation, please be as generous as you can be to support against the stream. And then on uh, in two weeks on July 14th, I have a day long. So also on the website, you can register, register January. Ja, uh, January, not July, January 14th. It's in a couple of weeks, um, a, a day of meditation practice from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. So you're all welcome. Also, there's a registration fee. If you can't afford that, let us know. You can come anyways and come practice for the day. But if you can't afford it, fucking pay it. <laughs> Leave the scholarships for the people who can't afford it. Um, I think that's all I got. May any goodness that comes from our practice be shared with each other, shared with our whole Sangha, all of our community, all the wise beings who have supported us along the way. And in widening circles until we share this field of merit, of goodness, of wisdom outward in all directions with all living beings. May each one of us get as free as possible in this lifetime. And together, may we create a positive change on this planet. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.